Well, he heard all the rumors that were going on around him. He could hear the whispering as he walked through the streets of Athens, and he could hear folks talking about this little rogue cult group that had made its way to Thessalonica. And folks were walking about talking about this radical, this radical who actually believed that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who was raised from the dead, came to him personally and personally mentored him and personally taught him how to take the message that he was preaching to the Gentiles, to the pagan world. Folks were talking about this Hellenist Jew who somehow got connected to that group in Jerusalem who was practicing some sort of magic, and they began to speak in these different kinds of languages, and there was this revolution that was going on, and all of a sudden, this man was connected to it, and now he's going about stirring up all kinds of trouble, and every city he's going to, actually what he is doing is he is ruining people's life. And his latest victim was a man named Jason. Jason was just an ordinary man in the context of his community. He was actually serving his synagogue, trying to do the best he could to provide for his family. And all of a sudden, one day, this radical ends up in his synagogue and begins to explain that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything he has ever believed and everything he has ever taught from the Bible. And it all of a sudden made sense to him. And he believed, yes, this Jesus of Nazareth is who this crazy preacher says he is. And he began to give his life over to that message. And he even invited this radical into his home. And then other people began to believe this message. And yet the religious leaders in the city couldn't take it. They're taking folks away from our synagogue. Our, our numbers in worship are down because of this crazy cult leader who has come to our city. And they begin to investigate and they begin to find this group meeting in Jason's home. And they drag Jason and his family, Jason and his friends, out into the streets. And they bring them before the city officials who tell them, stop meeting. We'll have none of this. But where is the crazy radical man? Where is the fundamentalist preacher who showed up in town and now all of a sudden he's nowhere to be found. Well, he's in Berea and he's preaching the gospel there. He must be scared. He must be frightened by what's going on and there he is in Berea ruining someone else's life and all of a sudden the religious leaders are running to Berea to push this man from Berea to find him out there, to do the same thing they did in Thessalonica, to tell him he can't preach the gospel. But he's not there. Where is he? Well, he's in Athens. He's in Athens walking the streets. And we read in the book of 1 Thessalonians that his impact there was so great. They are being talked about all over the Roman world, and he hears folks in Athens talking about them. And I'm sure at times there was anxiety in Paul's heart as he thought about, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Do I really believe what I am saying? And everywhere I go, there is destruction. Everywhere I go, there is chaos. Everywhere I go, there seems to be beatings and imprisonment. Everywhere I go, 
seems to be I'm ruining people's lives. And as we see in our text, beginning in verse 16, Paul is walking through the streets of Athens, and he is waiting for Timothy. He's waiting for he is waiting for these men who are traveling with him as he has moved from city to city. And notice what happens as he is in Athens here. He is provoked within him. His spirit is provoked as he saw this city full of idols. He finds himself in Athens, the center uh, at one time of philosophy and religion. It's where every known God was worshipped. It is said of Athens at one time that it would be easier to find an idol, it would be easier to find a God than a man. Paul's in a new city, new situation. He's been down by the riverbank. He's been in prominent synagogues. He's preached the gospel in just about every place, and now he's in this city full of idols. What's he going to do there? What's he going to do there? The same thing he keeps doing, preaching the gospel. And as he looks around at these idols, the text says he is provoked, verse 16, literally infuriated. He is angered by what he sees in the idolatry of this city. And he doesn't just sort of rant about it on Facebook. He doesn't just sort of sit back and, and, and sort of fume about what's going on. It's this provoking in his heart, this anger leads him to action. It leads him to proclaim the gospel. He realizes the idols all around him, the philosophies that he's hearing about, these ancient myths, myths in a Athens there. They're not just abstract ideas. They involve the souls of men. And what is the only solution to idolatry? The gospel, the proclamation of the gospel. As we think about apologetics, that's sort of a big word for theologians. It means giving a defense of the faith, giving a reason for why you believe what you believe. But at the end of the day, it's all about proclaiming the gospel. At the end of the day, it is pro about proclaiming the kingdom, which is what he does here as he is infuriated. Notice his response, verse 17. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, Jews and those who are following Judaism, those who are following after the Jewish faith, Gentiles. He goes to the synagogue and he goes to the marketplace. It says every day with those who happen to be there. His response to sin and idolatry in the culture is to proclaim the gospel. It is to go to the synagogue and reason from the scriptures. It is to go to the marketplace and declare the gospel. You see, we have been so tricked by Satan and so deceived. When we look at tragedy in our culture, when we look at sin in our culture, when we look at things that are just not right in our culture, we think of a hundred different things that we should be doing apart from proclaiming the gospel. Most of us, some of us immediately think who we're going to vote for in the next election. Others of us think, well, we need to start this new ministry and we need to give to this charitable organization. They can take care of those things. Or these folks need a support group or, or we need to give or we need to do this. We think of a hundred different things when we see problems in our culture, problems in our society other than proclaiming the gospel. Paul's response here to the idolatry in Athens is to proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. 
the most natural response for the Christian when they look out at their culture and they look out at their city and they see sin and they see problems should be to proclaim the gospel. If you are really broken by what's going on in the world today and you walk the streets of Richmond and you walk through your office and you walk uh, through your schools and you look around and you think, you know, this world's just going to pot. And your natural response isn't, I need to share the gospel, then you're missing it. The gospel is the only hope. Paul goes to the synagogue here and he sits down with the Jews and he begins to converse with them. He teaches them. He explains that Jesus is the fulfillment of all they teach. He heads out to the marketplace, to the coffee shops, door-to-door evangelism. He is walking the streets, sharing the gospel, the text says, to all who happen to be there. He is looking for someone in this city of idolatry who would believe the message of the gospel because it's their only hope. Now, when we think here of marketplace, we can't think of a strip mall. When the text talks about marketplace here, it's talking about the center of all culture, all commerce. You think about Wall Street, and you think about Walmart, and you think about the college, and you think about the university, all rolled into one place. And that's where the Apostle Paul is here. And he sees all of this, and he sees the idolatry, and he sees the history, and he sees the philosophy, and he sees all the culture that's going on here in Athens, and he marches right into the middle of it and begins to proclaim the gospel. He begins to evangelize. And what we see Paul doing here reminds us that our faith is a public faith. It's not this privatized, individualized thing that's off to the side. When you become a Christian... You believe good news, not private news, not individualized news, good news that is to be proclaimed, that is to be told, that is to be heralded. And that's what we see Paul doing here. Wherever he goes, from the synagogue to the marketplace, where culture is all rolled into one place, he is proclaiming the gospel. It reminds us that everywhere we go, the good news is to be echoed. There are to be conversations around your breakfast table about the good news. You have children who need to believe the gospel. The good news better be echoed around your dinner table. As you walk through the hallways in your schools, the the, the good news should be echoed. There should be an echo in your life where you are having conversation, where you are having discussion about the good news in your dorm room, in the playroom, in the bedroom, everywhere the gospel must be proclaimed. It must be discussed. It must be talked about. It is verbal. It must come out of your mouth. Paul looks at the culture and he says, what's the, what's the only hope? The gospel, the good news. And he begins to proclaim the good news in the marketplace. One of the things about our marketplace today is that it is so big and it is so wide and it is so vast and it is so cyber and it is so worldwide webbed that it's hard to figure out where do I go with this message? What what, what am I supposed to be talking about? Paul goes to the center of town, the center of culture, and he proclaims the gospel. What does that look like in our own life? The other night, Danae and I, We were getting ready to go to bed, and she was shopping on her iPhone. She was was buying $120 worth of clothes, which I got the receipt for in my email, so I know that. And, um, And she's doing that on her phone while I am 
studying for this sermon on my phone. And I am reading different commentaries, and I'm reading different study Bibles, and I'm reading different sermons that others have preached from, and I'm, and I'm thinking, this is insane. The marketplace is, is right here at our fingertips in our bedroom. That is strange. That is odd. But it's so vast and it's so wide. The other thing about the marketplace that we live in is everyone has a voice. Everyone can say what they believe. The most common, ordinary folks on a daily basis are speaking into the marketplace. And they're telling folks about what, who they're going to vote for. And they're telling folks about what their horoscope is. And they're telling folks about what Bible verse they're memorizing for the day. And they're telling folks about what they're eating. And they're telling folks about how they should eat and how they should run their lives. And they are postulating and promoting their worldview constantly on Facebook, blogs, and everywhere. And the problem in our society is every voice carries the same weight. It doesn't matter what letters you have in front of your name or after your name. Whether you're a doctor, you're a lawyer, you're a professional, you're an expert, if you can Google and you can find a forum where other people will listen to you, you are an expert. That's the problem with our everybody's word carries the same weight. And so what do we do as Christians? Here's the issue. When we think about this issue of defending the faith or giving an answer, first of all, we have to be very clear as we send our voice out into the marketplace that it is a clear gospel presentation. Think about all the words you read. Think about all the things you hear on a daily basis. Are you adding to the noise or are you proclaiming the gospel? When you talk, when you speak, is it gospel? Is it the word of God? Is it the word of the gospel? There is a time to talk about politics. I believe that. I believe in a culture that promotes death, We have to be very careful about those who we vote for that would promote a culture of death. There is a time to talk about politics. There's a time to talk about theology. We got to know what we believe. We got to know what we are delivering to the world around us. But we have to make sure that our theology and our politics don't overshadow our message. We have to be sure that at the end of the day, are we known more for our politics or the king who will rule eternally? Are we known more for our soteriology or the Savior? We have to be very clear. We have to be very precise in what we are saying. Paul finds himself in the marketplace, and here he is going to be very clear about what he is going to say to everyone around him. He has preached everywhere, and now the philosophers of the day call attention. They call him into their court. Notice verse 18, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. These were sort of the prominent philosophies of the day. The Epicureans, they believed that pleasure was the center of man. God really had no affairs in in the day had no interaction in the daily affairs of man, and there was no afterlife. The Stoics, they believed in this self-discipline. They were indifferent to pleasure and pain. You discipline yourself enough to, to avoid pleasure, but also to be indifferent to the emotions of pain. And here Paul is proclaiming the gospel with all of these philosophies that are swirling about. And our tendency would be intimidated by these men of intellect. 
Paul marches right in there and proclaims the gospel, even if it is a strange message to those who are listening. Notice, they wanted to converse with him. And notice, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divines because he is preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know more what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing new things. So in this marketplace of ideas where people just like to sit around and talk about what do you believe? What do you believe? Oh, that's an interesting idea. What if it happened this way? What, what if things were this way? Oh, you believe that? Well, so-and-so believes this. And there's some credibility to that. And then all of a sudden, Paul steps in the, in the middle of all this and he preaches Jesus Christ in the resurrection. And as we listen to all that, we think all that strange ideas, these men are taken back by the strangeness of the gospel. And they call him a babbler. They're saying, no, we know what we're talking about. But this man, he is a babbler, literally a seed picker, one who's just picking at truth. He's just sort of making it up as he goes. This sort of back, we heard that he was educated. We heard that he knew the Bible. We, we thought he knew what he was talking about. Now he's this uneducated, backwoods fundamentalist, and they call him to court. They call him sort of to the Romans ver- version of access here. You come in, you're going to tell us what you believe, and then people are going to text in Q&A questions, and, and, and you're going to try to answer them. That's sort of what's going on here. Paul stands before the philosophies of the day, and he's going to give an account for what he believes. But notice this. Notice the way his message was described. Babbling. Doesn't make any sense. He's just walking about talking about these strange foreign ideas, these foreign gods that we've never heard of, this new teaching, these strange things. You see, we've got to get to a point as we proclaim the gospel in our culture, in our world, in our life, it's okay that our message is strange. Okay? It is. If you came here today and you expected me to make the message less strange, then you came to the wrong place. It is a weird, awkward story. It's just out there. And these men realize this. They see it. Now, I'm okay with contextualizing the message and speaking to the culture and being clear in what we communicate. If we all took a mission trip to Cordova today and we said we're not taking any Spanish speakers with us and we're not going to speak Spanish while we're there, they'll just have to believe the gospel in English. That would be stupid. That would be foolish. The same thing in our culture. There is a way in which we speak to the culture. Paul does this here. He talks about their gods. He talks about their poets. But there is a tendency within us to go farther than we should. One of the most troubling things to me today is the attempt to make the gospel hip. To make the gospel hip and cool. And I'm finding out this sort of church planning culture 
where everybody who's involved in church planning has to wear glasses like Miss Dinah Martin has on over here. And, and they dress, 40-year-old men dress like they're still in middle school. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't even matter if you're meeting out in a cornfield somewhere, you still have to dress hip and cool. You're trying to make the gospel hip. I bought this shirt this week. And it's one of those shirts that you cannot tuck in. It looks very silly tucked in. But I don't want to be a cool church planner, so I'm not going to wear my shirt like Josh and, 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 and Brian and Adam and everybody's got their shirt untucked. I don't want to be hip. And I don't want to dress like I'm still in middle school. But there is a tendency to try to make the gospel hip and cool. And you can't do it. I talked to a missionary this week who said one of the things going on in the church is that churches are trying to make this idea of going and dying for Jesus cool. And it's just sort of a cool thing among young folks. And so churches will send over these groups of people to places like Iraq and places where you can be killed for going there and preaching the gospel there, and they'll come in for a week, and we'll never see them again. They come in, and they spend a week with us, and they don't want anything to do. Why? So they can go back to their churches and say, we're hip, and we're cool for Jesus. We read David Platt's book, Radical, and we tried to die for Jesus. We're cool. You can't make that cool. You can't make the gospel hip and cool. Our message is about a God who flooded the earth, I mean, think about that. We believe a story that is in this book where it rained 40 days and 40 nights and it flooded the earth and he saved one family who built this massive boat and it took him almost 100 years to do it. That's fairy tale sounding. You gotta be okay that that's strange. And he is the God that sent his son who was born of a virgin and she was still a virgin after he was born. That is a strange, odd message. It's not, it doesn't make sense. And he lived a perfect life, and then he never sinned. And everyone you talk to knows that they're sinners. And you're trying to communicate that there was literally a man, but he was 100% man and 100% God. That is strange. That is awkward. And then he lets all of the villains sort of overtake him and destroy him, even though he has all power. And then three days later, he got up out of the ground. And if you believe in him, though you never see him, his spirit lives within you, he will come back and he will rescue you on a white horse. That's your message. That is odd. And that is strange. You aren't going to make that cool and hip. You're just not. Some of us wish it was more cool. Some of us wish it was more hip. But it is the message that separates all humanity. And as you proclaim it, it is a otherworldly message in a world full of sin and idolatry. So what do we do? Do we back down? Paul doesn't back down here. He marches in even to the court of the philosophers of the day, and he declares this strange message. Notice verse 22. First of all, he proclaims the existence of God. Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that you are very religious. 
Not that you're devoted to Yahweh, not that you're pious, but you're just spiritual. I look around and I see all of these objects of worship he talks about in verse 23. He says, I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. To the unknown God. You are claiming that you don't know him, but you are still trying to worship him. Just in case he is there, you want to cover your bases. And Paul says this, you know him. You know him, but you reject him. That's Paul's message. You know this God you are claiming not to know, but you reject him. And your issue is not knowledge. Your issue is rebellion. And he continues in the text. He says, what therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. I declare to you the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven, does not live in temples made by man. If God, who was there before anything existed, spoke everything into existence, exist, you're not going to put him in one of these buildings. No, he created everything. You can't contain him in a piece of wood. You can't contain him in a piece of concrete. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath. He says here, God created everything and sustains everything. He doesn't sit around and say, let me give you the evidence. Let me compare this to the big bang theory. No. God exists. He created everything. And you can't fit him in a building or a piece of wood. You see, the reality with these folks and the reality with us is if we can create a God for ourselves, we can control him. We can tell him what we're gonna do. We can tell him what we wanna believe. And the issue in every heart is to create a God like that. But he says here, God created you. You cannot contain him. These idols that you create, these gods that you create, you can control them. You can tell them what to do, but you can't do that to the God of the universe. What he is saying here is... You create your God, you can do with him whatever you want to. But if there's something or someone outside of you that created everything else, you're accountable to him. Your little gods, they're accountable to you. But if there's a God outside of you, you are accountable to him. Notice as he continues in verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries in their dwelling place. He is the creator, but he is also the ruler and controller of all things. He says to them, you control your little idols. You put them on the shelf and you clean them and you move them around. You're in control of them. But if there is one outside of you who controls everything, you're accountable to him. That's his point. God exists and God controls everything and everyone he created is accountable to him. But notice as he continues in verse 27, that they, these men that he has created and put in certain boundaries and determined their days and determined their dwelling places, they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and we move and we have our being. Even as some of your poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. 
Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. What he's saying is you want to form a God the way you want him. You want to create your God. You want to control your God. But that's not the way it works. There is a God who created you. And there is a God who controls you. And at the end of the day, he's the one that says what you should do and what you shouldn't do. And you are accountable to him. Here, Paul gets at the idea that Romans 1 talks about that everyone knows this creator exists. He even says that in Romans 1. There is a knowledge of God within everyone. How does that work? You wake up and you say, I exist. I exist. That tree exists. I didn't put myself here and I didn't put that tree there. Somebody else did. But what Paul says is that knowledge we twist and we turn and we make into whatever we want to. We worship the moon. We worship the sun. We make all kinds of little gods the way we want to. We even sometimes call them Jesus. We even sometimes call them Yahweh. We give them biblical names. But at the end of the day, we want a God the way we want a God. And that is rebellion in our own heart. You see, we've got to get used to the fact that that's everybody's problem. Some of you run across people every now and then who deny the existence of God. And you think, you wouldn't say this, but you think the reason they deny the existence of God is because they're so smart. They're so smart. That's not the case at all. But the reason they deny the existence of God is because they are just like you. And they are sinful and they are rebellious. They may have more degrees and they may have read more books. But they take the knowledge they have and they twist it and they turn it. It's the same way you'll talk to someone about Jesus and they will argue for the inconsistencies and the errors found in the Bible. Why are they doing that? Because if the Bible is true, they have to listen to it and obey it. It's the reason you'll sit down and you'll debate with folks issues of marriage the design of marriage, what the Bible says about marriage. And they think, if I can just argue against the Bible and what the Bible says straightforward, I don't have to submit to it. It's, that's the issue with everyone. There is a knowledge that God exists, but they suppress it and they rebel against it. It's the same issue you and I have. We read the Word of God, we hear the Word of God, and we push it away. I don't think he really meant that. I think Pastor Jeremy got it wrong today. God's really not calling me to do that. And sometimes I do get it wrong. But but I don't think God's word, when it says this, really means this for me. We know God exists. We hear his word, but we suppress it. We push it away. The issue is rebellion in the hearts of every man. That's why Paul, when he continues here... In verse 30, he says, in times of ignorance, God overlooked. The times of ignorance, he overlooked, but now commands. Do you see that? Commands. God created everything. Everyone is responsible to him, and now they are responsible to him in one person. Notice as he continues, he commands all people everywhere to repent to turn from this rebellion because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed. And this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. It all comes into view here. 
God created everything. He controls everything. Every man is accountable to him, and yet every man sins against him. But now, times past, God overlooked that. He was overlooking sin. He was overlooking rebellion. And what was he looking forward to? Cross of Jesus Christ, where sin and rebellion was taken care of. He didn't punish all sin at once, at the same time. He looked to the cross because he knew Jesus would make a payment for sin. And now he has appointed a day where you will have to give an account for the one who paid for your rebellion. That suppression of truth, that rebellion against your creator, one has paid for that. And notice the text says, now he commands You see, unbelief and believing in Christ isn't just an option. It is a command from God. When you reject the gospel, you are disobeying your creator. When you reject the gospel, you are disobeying the one who has died from your sins. You're disobeying the one he has raised from the dead. It says here, you are disobeying the one who will judge the world in righteousness. You see, as Paul looked around at all of the idolatry, all the things that they made up, all the things that that they contrived in their own mind. All of those things. What he is saying here, you are in rebellion, but listen, you can know how to have your rebellion paid for. And and your little idol, he's not going to save you on the day of judgment. You can know how to have your sins paid for. And this is a command from God that you would turn to his son in belief, in trust, and you would believe in him. The issue here for the Athenians, the issue for us here, the issue in Athens, the issue here in Richmond is this. A philosophy can be debated. A religious system can be ignored. Thoughts and ideas and concepts can be forgotten but not the person of Jesus Christ. It's not an idea. It's not a philosophy. It is a person that every man will have to look into his eyes. And it all comes down to him. This week, Josh and I, we were meeting a certain college student at a certain coffee shop downtown. And we walk into this coffee shop and I notice few Christians that I know, that I've seen at church, that I've seen at other events, and I've been told that the, the Christian, that there are Christians who run the place, and, you know, we order our coffee, and we make our way upstairs. We're going to sit down. We're going to talk about college ministry. We, we go through this room upstairs, and I notice a priest who is seated over here, and he's talking to someone, counseling him, and we walk around, and we sit in a corner, and I notice this student this guy who's a student pastor, and he is discipling this, the, this young man, and then they come in, and then they all are talking about the gospel. They're all talking about Jesus, and then we sit there, and we talk about church, and we talk about college, and we talk about Jesus. And I wanted to get out of the place because I was thinking, didn't I move to Richmond to plant a church? I mean, there, there is a lot of Christians around here. This is like the Christian hot spot. And so I come down the steps, and there's some more folks that I know who are Christians. And then we walk outside, and there's Julie Laszlo. There's another Christian. And so we talk to her, and then we're walking around, and, I, and then we're making our way back to the building. And Josh takes me by this church that's shut down and this church that's closed down. And I'm thinking, good night. 
what kind of place is this? And I was reminded that I'm teaching Acts 17 this week. And Paul walks through a city full of idolatry. He walks through a bunch of buildings where they used to worship gods they didn't even know. Now, I don't think it's a bad thing to see a lot of Christians. I hope it's a good thing. And I hope it's not a dangerous thing. But if we create a little building and we create a little subculture where all we do is eat Chick-fil-A and vote Republican, there will be others, missionaries from China and Africa who stand downtown, Richmond, and say, I see all, I see you're very religious, but you don't know the gospel. You're accountable to Jesus. You're accountable not to a building. You're accountable not to a little subculture where everybody wears flip-flops and everywhere with cool glasses and everyone grows soul patches and all that's going to fade away one day, I promise you. If you pay me more, I'll do it. But it will, it will fade away. What is going to matter is if we are a church that's proclaiming the gospel. Kingdom apologetics is proclaiming the kingdom, and everybody in here can do it. Everybody in here can proclaim the gospel. God exists, and you're accountable to him and Jesus, and I don't have all the answers, but I know that's the truth of the word of God. Would you please believe it? Everybody in here can do it. But here's the reality. Idolatry isn't just something in Athens, and it's not just something that's all around us. It's something that's in our own hearts. The danger for us here today is we walk in here and we are worshiping a God we created. We are worshiping a God that we can control. We think even by being here, we're controlling God. I came to church today, bless me. I prayed this prayer, bless me. That's just another idol. It's a person. It's a person you will stand and have to look into his eyes one day. Believe in him. Trust in him alone for salvation. Crush your idol, even if his name is Jesus. Even if you have duct taped that name across because you've dropped him and you, 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 you haven't treated him the way you think you should. Throw it away. Trust in Jesus today. Notice the text what happens? Paul proclaims this message. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Resurrection of the dead gets them every time. Jesus got up out of the ground. You will too. You will too if you believe in him. They mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again. So Paul went out from their midst, and men joined him and believed among whom also were these people with weird names, and a woman named Demarius and others with them. I'm just not going to sound stupid. What happens when he proclaims the gospel? From city to city, some people believe, some people don't. Some people believe, some people don't. But he keeps preaching. Prison, beatings, standing before the philosophers and being mocked. He's okay with the suffering. He's okay with the humiliation. Are you? Are you? Are we? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the gospel. And God, we pray today that you would transform us by the very power of your word. God, that we would trust in nothing else but the message of the cross. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.